Malcolm Holmline, as I mentioned, is in Jerusalem. And he mentioned to me that over the last week or so, he has been in, in addition to Jerusalem and Israel. He has been to a London, Morocco, Egypt, and Cyprus. I suspect it will be impossible to get through all the details during our conversation this morning. Uh, but we will try our best in addition to getting to as much of the news of the day and of the last couple of weeks as is humanly possible. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. And he is live in Jerusalem. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. No, it's my pleasure to be back with you again. I missed you last week. I'm sorry, but it was just tactically impossible. Uh, no problem at all, and um, we appreciate it. And uh, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the the trip sounds like it was amazing. Would love to do some of the details on it, and hopefully we'll get to some of them later on in this conversation. First, there are a couple of news items that people in our audience are very anxious to hear you comment about, and we'll start with this. Tell me what you think about the, um, the uh, President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu encounter last week at the White House. Well, I think it was very important on a, on a number of grounds. One is the perception that it created that countered uh, some of the um, uh, sour notes that had been uh, um, characterized the relationship in recent years. And it has real ramifications because countries in the region react to it, some uh, with disappointment, some with glee, but uh, most at least take it into account in their strategic assessments because the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship is a vital component of, uh, for Israel in its relationship with countries in the region. I think that they are, uh, are looking for America to re-engage. As one expert told me, America vanished without leaving, uh, the sense that there was a vacuum here for many years. It elevated Israel's status, in a sense, certainly against uh, Iran and, and the perceptions uh, that Israel's essential role and now, with a close relationship appearing uh, apparent with the, the, the administration, that helps, and it's an asset to Israel as well. Throughout the region, and you mentioned some of the countries that we visited, uh, this becomes very apparent. People are looking at the new administration with uh, anticipation, with some anxiety. They don't know what clearly to expect, and it's too early to really know until the administration has a chance to get uh, firm footing. The Prime Minister may visit again next month for the APAC conference and have a chance to meet the President, but clearly the smiling pictures, the messages of uh, cooperation and uh, mutual support were very important. And I don't mean to digress because I, I've got to ask you a couple of follow-ups about the White House meeting, but, but, but you just mentioned in terms of countries that took notice of this. I would assume from the four countries that I mentioned that you visited, chief among them in that area was probably Egypt. Who, who, who paid closest attention to what was going on and tried to decipher, I would assume, uh, the situation now as the President of the United States seemed to elevate Israel to this position. Uh, you're right. I think it's a fair assumption. You know that Sisi, President Sisi, whom we met this past Sunday morning, uh, is really remarkable in the way he talks about Israel and the relationship, the cooperation, fighting ISIS, fighting uh, Hamas and Gaza shared agendas, um, the, uh, for them, he was the first foreign leader that the president, uh, I think then president-elect Trump spoke to, um, and 
He uh, he's looking forward to coming. Uh, the foreign minister of Egypt is arriving this week in Washington, uh, and they look very much to the relationship with the United States to get support, to get uh, backing, uh, which they felt was lacking in with the previous administration for a variety of complex reasons. But uh, no less in Cyprus, which is uh, doesn't face the same challenges, but is looking very much. To, to the relationship, and because of the new situation in the Medi- in the Eastern Mediterranean and the the axis of Greece, Israel, and Cyprus, and the close cooperation that exists between them, something as you know, we worked on for a long time together with our Greek American counterparts and others, and we have many many other countries. Uh, the President of Bulgaria spoke at the opening of our conference, uh, along with President Rivlin. Uh, this is the part of the conference here in Israel, and they reaffirmed the commitments to this Mediterranean design that we have. Um, but the every country, every country in England, the only questions everybody asks is about the new president and the, Mr. Tillerson and others and what they're likely to do. The answer is we don't know, and and it's too early to to even speculate. Uh, we've seen some of the pronouncements. I think it's their intent, but they also have to deal with reality to implement them. Uh, all right, so the, back to the back to the encounter at the White House. Um, I, I wouldn't call it confusion, but I think there was different speculation about how the president and prime minister ended up in terms of the you know future negotiations for peace in the Middle East. Uh, did they, in fact? endorse or dance around the topic of a two-state solution uh did they speak more about you know some type of regional conference or regional initiative to really in 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 a way you know further globalize the whole issue of the israeli-palestinian conflict what did you come away with that that, what would be the element that would be key to both of them in terms of future negotiations finding a partner to talk to uh, I think that, that there's a lot of speculation interpreting what people said or didn't say. The problem is nobody's defined what a two-state solution or one-state or three-state. Now people talk here about confederation. It, it, the real key is when the parties will sit down together. And I think that's what President Trump was trying to say, was that you want to talk one-state, two-state, whatever you want to do, but you guys have to decide. It has to come organically from the parties. And that is right. You can't impose a solution. You can't predetermine it. It has to come out of negotiation. I think uh, the prime minister was saying, look, don't box me in on these titles because everybody has a different interpretation. Now, if you ask 100 of your listeners to find two states, everyone will have a different definition. Right. And and that's why I think and and think it's smart not to have the labels, not to get caught up on it, but instead to really focus on the substance and and building, uh, I think, a smart approach, which is not going to be talked now because I don't think a boss will do it, but to change facts on the ground, to build economically, to invest, to something I know the prime minister has spoken about, has done, has actually implemented uh, both in the Israeli arms sector as well as in uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, t- sector, the the, uh, the, but the, to, to throw these slogans and make that a litmus test that somehow you have to say exactly the same words as somebody else, that's not the way you make policy. Right, but the practical application of some of it is what bothers or what concerns many of us. For instance, you know, when, when a regional conference or anything regional is proposed, you know, what would that look like? You know, based on what you just said, not only don't we know what two states would look like, we don't even know what a regional conference would look like. 
It's true. You don't know who would be in it, but it will look very different than it did in the past. And I think that the regional approach has some validity that you build support. It is one way to overcome the obstacle that the Palestinian-Israeli track is not going to happen soon, clearly, that doesn't appear Abbas is, is ready to do it. But you could have a regional approach that creates new circumstances that pushes the Palestinians to see that they have a lot to lose and a lot to gain. That Israel, knowing that, and the people of Israel, knowing that they will have this uh, different security relationship, different economic relationship with other countries in the region. And it's not, it does not dictate what the outcome should be. We're talking now about creating a different climate, different atmosphere, and I will tell you from our travels, when we had the, a dinner in the Royal Palace in Morocco, glad kosher, with all the leadership of Morocco, including the whole cabinet, um, and that message was made public when Mr. Sisi, the president of Egypt, sent out a picture of our group meeting with him. When these are different changes, these are things that would not have happened in the past, uh, let alone the kind of dialogue that we have with them. So you, you change the atmosphere not to predetermine what you're talking about, which are the details of the outcome, right. but to create the circumstances that enable the parties to come and sit down and talk. Yeah. You don't know what will come out of that. I understand. I hate to harp on this detail, but give me one more on this. Uh, I mean, there are some skeptics, some might call them analysts, who suspect that the prime minister actually threw out this idea or threw in this idea of a regional conference for the express purpose of deflecting everybody away from this whole two-piece potential process, two-state two potential process, two-state solution. Is it possible that the prime minister is, is the one responsible for suggesting this just to take attention away from what might be the most practical approach? Actually, it was proposed long before, both by him, by people in the Obama administration, and by and, and we have been engaged in this kind of regional outreach. So I, 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 don't, I don't know that it's deflection. I, I do think that he's trying to offer it as an alternative for right now because that the other approach is not is just not feasible. Malcolm Honline is with us from Jerusalem. It is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web, and NahumSiegel.com on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on our beloved NSN app. Um, what do you think of uh, brand-new National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster? Well, I don't know him, but I do know uh, somebody very well who knows him, who I trust explicitly, and he told me, of his personal encounter with him, and especially about the Holocaust Memorial that was built on a base where he was, uh, where the general was, and um, the, his personal involvement, and has uh, expressed himself very strongly about not never allowing it to happen again. So I think that's an optimistic uh, beginning. Uh, we'll have to see, obviously, when the real proof comes, as we're, they are tested on the issues. Right. But I think. It is a positive indication. With the prior, uh, with the prior U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, it became evident, especially late in the Obama administration, that in fact, in that position, I would assume in most, if not all, am ambassadorial positions, uh, they are representing the policy of the United States as dictated by the, you know, whoever the president of the United States is at that time, as dictated by the White House. Um, I'm sure you saw the speech by uh, Nikki Haley earlier in the week, ambassador to the UN. Uh, if, if, in fact, what I just said is true, that it's a reflection of White House policy, one, one who is concerned about Israel could only be completely thrilled 
with her presentation and that, in fact, President Trump is behind the effort to stop the unfairness to Israel at the U.N.? Yes, but if you know, in the last speech, the former ambassador, Samantha Power, made that point and spoke very strongly to it on various occasions about the bias issue. And even Mr. Guterres, the secretary general, and Ban Ki-moon, in one of his last speeches, actually at a request, made a very strong statement about the bias against Israel at the United Nations. So it, it has been a um, an approach that both administrations, both things have condemned the, the blatant bias. Uh, and, of course, they opposed the UNESCO resolution and other things uh, in, the, in the past year. Uh, but I think nothing comes close to... Ambassador Haley's very strong statement, and as you said, she is a representative of the U.S. She's not an independent agent. Maybe the actual text, the language, comes from herself, but I'm sure that it had to be approved uh, by the State Department. But I think a lot of it, you, you, the sense you get is that it's coming from her heart, that it's something she really believes. Her record is such, although she's never visited Israel. She was the first to introduce the BDS legislation when she was a governor, and I think her her uh, absolute position sends the right message. Too often, the United Nations, you know, read, they all read between the lines. And if they think that something's just being done on a performative basis, then they say, well, you know, it's a domestic politics. They have to please the Jews. They're on a powerful group, et cetera. That's not the message they got from her. They got a right. message of clear determination. <laughs> I mean, there were people here commenting that she should run not only for president of the United States, but she should run for prime minister of Israel, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so we were checking to see if she was born in America to make sure that she would be eligible because uh, people are ready to start the campaign. But first, they got to let this president uh, run his course and do his job, and that gives you people to have uh, in the future. And then the uh, UN was not happy with the uh, with the sentencing of Elora Zarya, uh, the Chevron shooting case that so many of us are familiar with. Um, the, the sentence was handed down, uh, it, obviously, it, for those who follow the Israeli media, a much more lenient punishment than ever, you know, than ever thought, right, I think, based on what people uh, uh, thought he would, he would receive in terms of the sentencing by the court. Um, and I don't know what feeling you're getting in Israel, uh, but it just seems, especially with the prime minister's public statement, that he feels he should be pardoned. I'd have to believe that public opinion, and even the media to an extent, has got to be on the side of Elor Azaria. Because otherwise I can't imagine the prime minister would have even come out with a public statement like that. Are you getting a sense, being in Israel these last couple of weeks off and on, that there is tremendous sympathy toward him? Well, the polls, the polls do indicate that. And... Uh uh, I think that the uh, certainly the Prime Minister's core support group would, would be even more overwhelmingly supportive of it. Uh, much of the media is supportive, not all. You know, we have there is a strong leftist media here. Some criticize the sentence, but you know, when you talk about the countries in the United Nations looking at this, first they see that a country that holds itself to account mm -hmm. it doesn't need anybody from the outside. Second, about the length of the term, how many of them even would bring to trial somebody? who was put in a similar circumstance, and the United States might. But how many of the countries that serve, and of the 190 countries, would there be five? Would there be three who would or do the same thing? Maybe a few Europeans? Maybe, maybe. But a, a soldier on active duty at reacting to circumstances, uh, um, I think the fact that, that Israel showed that it is a, it is a society that um, holds 
itself to the highest standards, holds its soldiers who hold themselves to the highest standards. And I think many people, the reason you have a majority is that people look at it and say, look, here you have an H&L put in a very difficult circumstance. And even if he did not do proper procedures and follow and do what he should have done, we understand the circumstances that led to it. So I think the prime minister is reacting to that and and the the hypocrisy of the world that the 500,000 people die in Syria and you don't have a security council resolution. You have no condemnation for the thousands of Christians who are killed, for the people who are, are summarily um, uh, executed by uh, in so many countries, and yet there's no... Um, there's no condemnation. There's no uh, action by those governments against the soldiers responsible, and yet they sit in judgment of Israel. No, I don't buy it. It's unbelievable. Malcolm Holmline from Jerusalem. All right, uh, let's get to one of the big topics of the last few days. And that's of course anti-Semitism. Um, you've actually you've actually come out with a public statement asking for a conference and an establishment of a universal policy of zero tolerance when it comes to anti-Semitism. You also watched the vice president of the United States go to a site this week of, uh, of anti-Semitic vandalism. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that much has changed, as much as people want to conjecture that since January 20th, this country is much different. I, I can't imagine that in this area of anti-Semitic acts and general perception and feeling toward the Jewish community has changed that much in the last month. Uh, why do you think this has escalated, that this has become a headline and one that the vice president and president has had to address early on in the administration? So first of all, I think Mr. Pence, Vice President Pence, should be congratulated. He did it in a very sensitive, he's a very sincere man, I think, and has a long history of association <clears throat> with the Jewish community in Indiana and elsewhere. I thought his visit was very important and a very important message to the community. I think second, and while we were uh, disappointed that the, they didn't mention uh, anti-Semitism in some of the statements early on and the president didn't make the references that we had wanted, he did subsequently, and I think that that's what is important now is to, to take that statement and see to it that it's acted upon. And the, uh, I mean, this idea that some are floating, that the president's an anti-Semite, this, I mean, this is ridiculous. It demeans the seriousness of what we are facing. And while many of them turn out to be hoaxes, these bomb threats, they do have an impact. They intimidate people from going to events, to attending, going to JCCs, to go, where, where it's, by the way, not only Jews. You can remember the shooting at the Kansas City JCC where right. non-Jews were killed, uh, that, that the the impact, the psychological impact on our community. And I think Governor Cuomo should be congratulated for allocating the money to, to enhance security. I think the president's statement, I think that the, the DHS, the Homeland Security Department, and FBI have been working, I know with SCAN and I'm sure with others, uh, our security community network uh, organization, um, to enhance the security of the Jewish community. They're, I think people are frustrated that they've not been able to trace you know, who's responsible for these calls. But, you know, it doesn't take much to pick, get a phone book and start looking up JCCs or go online and be able to find the phone numbers and make a phone call knowing that it gets this kind of reaction. And I think the more escalated the reaction, the more those who perpetrate these acts probably are, are encouraged. So the, the increase, though, is not just from now. This has been a pattern that has been going on for a long time. I've tried to report it 
or, or had discussion and had discussions for years, giving the statistics, not because the numbers in themselves, you know, uh, are are as significant as seeing the trend, and that on campuses, and people dismiss it or, or you know, put it in a special category. No, it's a reflection of what's going on in society. It is true, I think, that the selection unleashed forces on the extreme left and on the extreme right. But I also think the BDS campaign did. I think other um, other events contributed to it. But a general rise in in um, in these forces uh, in a society, bigoted and, and, and racist forces uh, that have been unleashed, and and uh, it, it requires everybody on a bipartisan basis. And I called for an international conference because I want to make it clear: one, this is not the Jews' problem. Jews are victims. This is society's problem, and it's the perpetrators who have to be held to account, and it's the general community that has to stand up on this issue. And I want to see European leaders and President Trump and others who stand for, for morality, who stand against anti-Semitism, to be the conveners. Israel should be involved, but it should not be Israel, nor the Jewish community. That we, What we did on Soviet Jewry in the 70s, 72 and 76, we had world conferences, it elevated the status, it mobilized reaction. People, it put it on the map. And I think the problem has been that anti-Semitism has been tolerated, that people feel, well, the Jews are secure, the Jews are this, the Jews are that. They're not. Yesterday, a young French boy with a yarmulke riding in the car with another young French uh, Jewish boy, a man, and they were forced off the road into a side street by a Middle Eastern looking people, that's the description of the press, and they beat him up, but they sawed off the finger of one of the guys. How brutal, how outrageous. And and there has to be such a total condemnation and outrage about these uh, these incidents once they're proven to be true and once they're all, you know, researched, et cetera. But the, the, the zero tolerance policy has to be put in place. You know, a lot of people talk about Islamophobia, but the increase in anti-Semitism is far greater, and the number of incidents of attacks against Jews is greater than the attacks against Muslims. And I think if you fight anti-Semitism, you are, in fact, fighting all forms of bigotry. When, I mean, you, you mentioned to us that you were in London, Morocco, Egypt, Cyprus. I, I, I would assume that in at least some of those places, you felt uncomfortable uh, and maybe even felt, you know, the the anti anti-Semitic attitude toward your group is that is that accurate? Well, when we walked in Morocco on Shabbos with a group, we had fifty people. They were with Yarmulkes. People would yell out Shabbat Shalom, and they were not Jews. What about when Egypt? In Cyprus, pardon me. What about Egypt? So uh, in Cyprus, the same in Egypt. We were only there for a few hours, and I would not say I would walk and walk around with the Yarmulkes necessarily, but certainly the pre- the president. Other members of the government, the respect that was shown our group, and not only in terms of the escorts and the public thing, but but the fact that the prime minister went public with the uh, with the picture of these people with yarmulkes on and standing in in the thing, and of course got the reaction from the Muslim Brotherhood and the Israel bashers, uh, uh, quite a, a violent and vocal response. Um, in Israel, I feel safe walking with the Yarmulke in the street. I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad to but, hear that. <laughs> but I do in Cyprus, too, where pro-Israel feelings are very strong. And, in fact, we visited <clears throat> a remarkable place, which I did not know about before, and was a surprise. We were taken by, to a, um, a military area that there used to be a British uh, hospital, 
in during the years when uh, Cyprus was used as a detention camp for Jews going to Palestine to Israel after World War II, and they were the British had a quota, so they would take them thousands, tens of thousands to thousands of them to um, to Cyprus <clears throat> during the years. And during that time, 2,200 Jewish babies were born. And the place we were taken was the site of the hospital where the babies were born. Wow. And they have there a, a, a significant um, place, a, a memorial to, uh, to, the, to what took place there. And in addition, they had uh, a display, uh, like a little Quonset hut with display of pictures. And Jeff Wiesenfeld, who was on the trip, saw his mother's picture in there. It was amazing. And the uh, the Minister of Defense came himself, the Israeli ambassadors came. It, it, it was very moving, and it was a public ceremony, uh, you know, out in the open, not a hidden place. Uh, and frankly, our group could move freely. They even have a kosher restaurant now on Cyprus and a minion there every day in, in uh, Larnaca. So I would say most of the places we felt safe. I would not say that I would walk with the Yarmulke in the street in London. I was going to ask you about that, the, ho- the home of the upcoming academic apartheid week. Oh, right, and many of them. But uh, I must say, I think the prime minister and others are, have spoken out against it. They are moving. Uh, they've undertaken official acts to, to uh, get the local councils and uh, governmental bodies to, to work against it and to outlaw participation in the boycott movements against Israel. And, of course, I meant Israel Apartheid Week for people to understand that that's, that that's what's going on now in in London. Um, and, and this episode with the Israeli basketball team in Turkey, and, you know, you, you've described somewhat of a relationship with the leaders of Turkey. Uh, you know, I would think they would take a responsibility to protect them like they would any national team or any any team at all that would be visiting the country. Wouldn't that be basic protocol? I know I know it happened. Absolutely. And, and they didn't act. It is. It's basic in every country. And, but we've seen lapses in Turkish security on a number of occasions, and uh, I don't know that it's whether it's intentional or just the result of incompetence or ineptitude on the part of uh, on a higher level or lower level. It should not happen. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what update you can give us, but in terms of the ISIS, in terms of ISIS targeting uh, you know places in Israel at this point. Um, I, I think I think they essentially came out and admitted it, right? A couple of weeks ago, I don't think we had an actual admission when they, they had that rocket attack on a lot. But, but now they're actually making it known to the world that they are targeting Israel. Right. They did. And, and Israel, I think last Saturday, sent drones that knocked out four guys uh, that ISIS admitted were ready to launch uh, rockets at Israel. Israel's response was very fast and very effective. They, were, they cannot allow these kind of breaches. I think Hamas even doesn't want, from what I understand, for the rockets to be fired, that it's, it's Islamist groups, it's jihadist groups who are doing it, who want to see an escalation of the battle. The Hamas wants this time to continue to dig tr- tunnels, right. to expand their, their arsenal. They're back at the pre-war level of, of missiles uh, that are more sophisticated. They, they want to build and they're not looking for a war now, but they're building the tunnels in Israel. They're preparing in many ways for it. So um, the the acknowledgement by ISIS, which is now no longer ISIS in Sinai, Islamic State in Sinai, it's now Islamic State in Egypt because it shows that their real target is, um, is a broader one, and that is to take over in Egypt. And there is 
a lot of resentment in Egypt about it because um, they get support and, and, and are able to send their troops to be treated in Gaza, and there's weapons exchanges. There are other things that happen. We also know that they're getting a lot of weapons still from Libya, which are transferring through some of the tunnels and being smuggled from through Gaza into uh, the Sinai. Uh, so, um, and we see Iran trying to rebuild its relationship with Hamas. And in fact, uh, during this time, a new president, a new chairman of Hamas in Gaza was elected, a guy named Sinhar, who, who is a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran, according to many reports, and his, has a close association with them. This, of course, raises the ire of others in the region who, who see the growing, growing expansionism of Iran, which is successfully building its uh, Shiite presence all the way to the border, uh, through, through Syria on one side, through Iraq on the other, through Lebanon to the Mediterranean, and to the Gaza. You know, it's interesting what you said early on in that answer, because uh, I was wondering, you know, how Hamas tolerates essentially ISIS moving in on their territory, right? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 can, I can understand there being a resentment after all the time that they've spent essentially in control of that area, and now ISIS comes in and decides. There is resentment. Yeah, I'm saying. I'm saying. Yeah, and, but, and I, and I wonder. There's money the, at stake. There are assistance. There's assistance at stake. But I wonder, uh, I wonder if in the future that could work to our advantage or work to Israel's advantage if, if they decide to you know, have their own little civil war. Well, Turkey is trying to establish a presence there. Uh, Egypt has warmed up its relationship a little bit with Hamas, and that I think is because they have the common enemy of ISIS. ISIS and Hamas have a lot of shared interests. They do training. They bring each other money and weapons and things that go on. But I think you're touching on something that is being watched very carefully by experts, and that is the tensions in the relation, inevitable differences in goals, and the um, uh, what what the consequences, and with the foreign competing powers getting involved in this. Um, and finally, the uh, I mean, the, the Prime Minister of Israel uh, has had some interesting encounters this week. Leaders in Singapore, Australia, etc. The, the Australia one especially uh, uh, piques our interest because it seems like we've had negative comments coming from Australia regarding Israel, even very recently. And then it seemed this week that things really seemed to go very well with the Prime Minister and Australian leadership. Could you tell us what's happening there? Yes. Uh, um the Prime Minister Turnbull and the Prime Minister Netanyahu have seemed to have very good meetings, good positive statements. The negative statements came from the Labour Party. And uh, <clears throat> like in England, we've heard also from the Labour Party, whereas Prime Minister May seems to be very much more supportive and positive. So you have to look at the source and you have to assess what it is exactly they're saying. Uh, overall, I think the trip is being described as a great success. And the... Um, and, you know, the prime minister is likely to go to China and Russia next month. Wow. And uh, it's not to get frequent flying miles, but I think <laughs> he, he is trying to uh, build the ties. And um, obviously with Russia playing such a critical role in Syria <clears throat> and the changes, which we could do a whole show on just alone about yeah. what is happening with the Syrian army, the rebel groups, what Iran's infiltration, the ISIS, the closeness to the Israel border, the changes in... in uh, Raqqa and other areas as well as what's going on in Iraq. These are very complex, long-term implications, grave implications for Israel. And, um, and so for for a, a lot of reasons, this is uh, the relationship with Russia is uh, very significant. 
in terms of Israel's ability to defend itself and defend that border and making clear what its red lines are. And with China, obviously, it's a critical uh, party. China was is number three trading partner with Israel. Uh, the reason I know that is last night we hosted a group of ambassadors from India, Russia, China, Japan, um, Germany, a few other countries who came and spoke to our group and engaged in dialogue. And the Chinese ambassador gave a very expansive presentation about the current and the anticipated exchanges on academic, uh, economic, political levels, um, as did some of the others. And we had the Jordanian and the Egyptian ambassadors there as well. It's becoming a smaller and smaller world, isn't it, Mr. Honline? In many respects, but a more and more complex world. Oh, yes. And that's why people have to stay on top of the facts. Don't just buy into slogans. Don't buy into glib reports. Get the facts. Know what you're talking about. You know, uh, try to assess what the implications are, not just on a visceral reaction or emotional reaction, I should say, but on the basis of the facts. All right, and congratulations to Balada Makonin of Ethiopia, who won the uh, Tel Aviv Marathon today, over 40,000 runners from around the world. Always love to end with some good news, and I guess if Israel is still able to attract tens of thousands from Israel around the world for an event like that, then uh, that's a very positive sign, to say the least. Uh, as they... It is, and there are many other positive signs, too, that we didn't have time, but maybe uh, once we get back on the regular schedule, we'll be able to to talk about, uh, I mean, not only the message of the break of the isolation of Israel that people had predicted and some who still talk about, you know, that Israel's going to be alone and Israel's look at the reality on the ground of, of these uh, runners that the cities, the streets were blocked off this morning uh, because of it and people very joyous and not only is the weather gorgeous here today, but people are out going to beaches and parks and you see people of all kinds uh, visiting here, as we had this week, uh, delegations, including football players and others who came and really got to see Israel and and appreciated everything that they saw. And uh, this is the message we got to constantly give out us to, to look at some of the amazing miracles. I saw medical uh, innovations today that are simply mind-boggling. And... Uh, and that is true in virtually every area today. No, it's like the Prime Minister said when he was in uh, in Washington or in the U.N. I forget already where the speech was. I think the U.N. You're, yeah, the U.N. He said, uh, yeah, essentially, he said, you're going to need us and you're going to want us down the road. You may as well start now. <laughs> that was basically his message. <laughs> and the isolation, thank God, seems to be eroding. Let's hope that continues. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations from Jerusalem. And uh, we will reconvene the Please God next week. Malcolm, have a wonderful Shabbos and enjoy the holy city. Thank you. Good Shabbos to everyone. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chair of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Remember, Malcolm has reminded us, I continue to remind everybody, Yom Yushalayim number 50 is coming up. It is uh, the 50th anniversary of reunification of Jerusalem on May the 24th. Information, Mizrahi.org slash YY50, Mizrahi.org slash YY50. We are anticipating an amazing and incredible week in Jerusalem that week in May. Um, just go ahead and, uh, and get your reservation, excuse me, get your reservations in and get ready to enjoy. 